Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I am recording this intro at 1.26 a.m. Sunday night. Today was a really good day because we were finally back at the opera. We were kicked out for a couple weeks while they were doing some renovations, fixing the floor, and today we were back home and it felt really good. Uh, so if you are wanting to come out to service this week, we're back at the opera. So come on out and we'll uh, we'll see you there. Um, Today was a really cool day. We did some cool Black History stuff. Uh, Gianna sang one of her original tunes. Hannah shared about uh, a really amazing person that you'll hear about in the um, message here in a second. I just want to share a couple of events that we have coming up. If you go to diff.church, you should see these. Uh, on the 26th of February, there is a violinist coming into town. Uh, one of our very own, uh, Dwayne, brought this to our attention. It's uh, somebody he really loves, and we're going to go hang out and listen to this guy crush it. So if you want to get tickets, just go to the website, diff.church. Um, also, our small groups are in full swing now. You can still sign up for the in-person groups. Uh, there's one in Tampa and one in St. Pete. Uh, we would love to have you. You don't have to come every week. It's just kind of chill. Uh, just come when you can and meet some cool people. And last but not least, it is Different Church's two-year anniversary or birthday, however you want to think of it. And we are going to celebrate by having an old-fashioned potluck on March 6th. So stay tuned. Um, we're going to come up with a list so everybody can kind of pick what they want to bring so we don't end up with all the same thing. Uh, follow us on social. Make sure that you are on the mailing list and uh, coming out to a service so we can talk about our potluck in person. All right. Uh, I want to jump right into the message today because Hannah was absolutely on fire. I think this was like the most like amens and uh -huh that I've ever heard from our audience. Uh, so I think you're really going to love this. So let's jump in. Y'all had better come to this potluck. Have any of you all grown up with church potlucks? Okay. Yes. Are they boring and terrible? No, they're amazing. <laughs> you get to have food. You get to not spend any money except on the dish you brought yourself. You get to hang out with people. And we have special permission from the opera to be here until 3 p.m. that day. So we can hang out as long as we want or as short as we want. No pressure. Um, I will probably be bringing some chips that I bought at the store. <laughs> but y'all should cook something. I, can, I may bake, but like I'm going to put a list together. So we'll have a list by next week so you can tell us what you're bringing because I don't want every single person to bring like chocolate cake. Although we could just have a chocolate cake potluck. <laughs> I know we'll at least have Rick's vegan chili. Okay, it is Black History Month, which means every week we're celebrating a person who has done something amazing and that I think you should know about. And this year we're kind of focusing on creative people, so people in the creative space. Um, last year we talked about, doc last year, last week we talked about Dr. Jaya John. Today, my person I would like to share with you is Morgan Harper Nichols. Have any of you heard of her? A couple of you. Okay, this is her. She does so many things. She like plays five instruments. She is a singer, she's a songwriter, she's a musician, a mixed media artist, a poet, and a writer. Um, in 2017, she started a project where she invited people to share their stories, whatever they were struggling with, on her website, and then she created art and poetry in response to that. 
Um, and she wouldn't share any like personal or identifying details, but she shared the poetry that she wrote and the art that she made for these people. And I found her in 2019. She has an email that's like just beautiful words that go out every single morning. She also posts on her Instagram page every single day. And it is like the most encouraging, uplifting, beautiful stuff. And 2019 was kind of a hard year for me. And I literally looked forward to her email every single morning. I would read it. You should follow her on Instagram. It's Morgan Harper Nichols. She also has a book of poetry and art called All Along You Were Blooming. It's sold more than 100,000 copies. She is on the board of directors at To Write Love on Her Arms, which is an anti-self-harm organization that does some amazing work. And then she also has been very open about her adult diagnosis with autism. Um, and she's a, just a tireless advocate for inclusion. So all around, she's a fabulous person. And if you would like more happiness and like gentleness and kindness in your life, you need to look her up. And also, I highly recommend her book. It's beautiful. These are some of her words. They're actually from her email that came out, one of them that came out this week. There are moments when it seems like the days are running together and days where you feel like you're running out of time. There are times when you try to imagine what it will finally look like to take that deep breath. And there are other times when you wonder, what are you even waiting for? You're asking a lot of questions right now, and while you wait for answers, I hope you can practice breathing. For all that you have to wait for in life, I hope exhaling isn't one of them. For all that you are waiting for, peaceful moments are waiting for you. They may seem small and insignificant at first, but they are worth seeking. Who says you can't seek peace while you wait? Who says, on the long journey of life, you can't experience delight along the way? Here's to finding hope in the waiting, no matter the answers you're waiting for. Oh, so good. I wish I could write like that. <laughs> it's so good. I love that. But also, I feel like it leads really well into what we're talking about today, because we're all here because we're searching for some kind of answer about faith, right? And today's topic is two parts. One is, why am I a Christian? Otherwise known as, who cares? Why bother with Jesus? <laughs> And the second part is, would Jesus be a Christian? So we'll do the easy one first. Why am I a Christian? This is a short answer. This is distilled as much as I can make it. I'm a Christian because I have confidence in Jesus Christ in all his dimensions, those I know and those I don't. I think Jesus is right because I believe God was in Jesus in an unprecedented way. Through Jesus, I have had this like real experiential relationship with God and have felt God's spirit in my life. And as I try to follow Jesus as my leader and my teacher and my guide, I, I feel like I'm experiencing life in its fullest dimension. All the love and joy and all the struggle and all the challenge. I think very strongly that Jesus loves me. This I know. <laughs> and you, and the whole world. Jesus is like more wonderful than I could probably put into words. But for far too many people, the name of Jesus has become a symbol of exclusion. As if Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, y'all have heard this, heard this, yes, has actually meant I am in the way of people seeking truth in life, and I won't let anyone get to God unless they come through me first. 
The name of Jesus, whose life, if you read his life, it overflowed with acceptance and welcome and inclusion and compassion. And it's a symbol of, what, elitism? <laughs> Exclusion? Aggression? I, this really pains me. And I imagine it pains Jesus as well. It's very common among Christian circles to say things like this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. We say this without even thinking about it, especially if you've grown up in church. It's like in all of our music, it's in all the sermons, it's in everything, and we don't think about it because it's been there the whole time. We'd be like, oh yes, Jesus is Lord. What the heck does that mean? Well, stick around, I'll tell you. <laughs> Let's start with Son of God, actually. Call Jesus the Son of God. To say Jesus is the Son of God is to say a lot, even though we just, just rolls off our tongue, no problem. In the Gospels, which are the four stories of Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to both as the Son of God and the Son of Man. They're used rather interchangeably. And the meaning of this construction is carrying the essence of or embodying the heart of. So Son of God would mean embodying God or carrying the essence of God. Just like we might say a child who looks exactly like their mom or their dad, they're like, they're a chip off the old block. <laughs> they're the spitting image. I don't know what that means, but the spitting image of their parents, right? This likeness is what the earliest followers of Jesus were like struck by because they weren't around Jesus. They felt, or maybe even like they knew somehow that they were experiencing God. And it's, I think it's beautiful to think that the Gospels use Son of Man and Son of God interchangeably because that suggests that the true essence of humanity is to be in the true image of God. The full, radiant, glorious experience of Jesus revolutionized the whole concept of God for the earliest followers of Jesus so that the word God itself got reimagined through the experience of encountering Jesus and seeing him act and hearing him speak and watching him live. And then... That was so crazy that it forever changed what followers of Jesus meant when they said God. What was God like? What was God about? They were like, well, Jesus. That's what God is like. And eventually, after much discussion and much reflection, the church began to describe God as what we know as the Trinity, which is God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And we can get into all kinds of philosophical rabbit holes about the Trinity and how God is possibly more than three persons, but we decided on three and that's all we can handle. <laughs> but if we think about where this came from, like this is a huge shift, okay? Because what they, when they knew about Jesus, it made them have to reimagine God. They could no longer conceive of God as a single dominant mind or will that was like this one dominant unifying force. Instead, because they had encountered Jesus, God suddenly seemed much more mysterious and much more relational. A community slash family slash one thing of saving love. Now, this is the part where I may get a little bit cynical and snarky. And I would just ask that you refrain from saying too many amens because I am not trying to be a jerk. It just may come out naturally when we think about the question, would Jesus be a Christian? Okay, so I'm going to try to be as nice as possible. <laughs> the more I study the Bible and reflect on the actual teachings in life of Jesus, 
The more I think that the most of Christianity as practiced today has very little to do with the real Jesus found in the Bible. And sometimes I don't think Jesus would be caught dead as a Christian. That was a pun for some of you. <laughs> Laugh at my jokes. <laughs> more generally, I don't think Christians would even like him if he showed up like he did 2,000 years ago. I think we would call him a heretic and possibly plot to get rid of him. The more we respect Jesus, the more we take Jesus seriously, the more we are actually having to be like brokenhearted and embarrassed and maybe even furious or some combination of all three when we consider what Christians have done with Jesus. This is certainly true when it comes to calling Jesus. The second phrase, Lord. We do this all the time, mostly without the foggiest idea of what we mean. So here's a question. Has Jesus become less of our Lord and more of our mascot? Because Lord means master. And there's, a, there's multiple senses of the word master. Okay, so stick with me for a moment. So first, Lord suggests authority and kingship. And whenever we use words like king and kingdom and authority and blah, 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 we, 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 we run into a few problems because first, patriarchy. And secondly, um, this is, like, this is like a very dominant word, kingship, right? We face the problem, in addition to this, that in, for contemporary people, these words are very archaic. We associate monarchies with non-democratic regimes or like figureheads who don't really have any real power in running the country. So it's impossible for us to feel what the word king would have even meant to people who heard it in Bible times. But maybe we can imagine this. Imagine what it would be like to live in a time of perpetual violence. Like someone dies that you know pretty much every day or every week. Like just awful brutality. You're just constantly vulnerable to whatever warlord or army is attacking your city. There is ever-present danger of starvation, of lack of water, of this awful violence, right? Of just dying from a hangnail. Like, you could just die for anything. Maybe under those circumstances, we can imagine what it would mean for a good king to come into power. Now, ironically, when many modern Christians use this word, like king, kingship, sovereignty, what we actually mean is control. Control is a tricky word. If you're living in chaos or danger, uh, to say a good king will be in control, that is good news. Somebody will bring order to this nonsense that keeps killing us. But it's not good news if you live like we do at the end of modernity, where you have been told um, how we are already controlled in a hundred different ways by our genes and our class struggle and our conditioning and our evolutionary competition and our physics and our social contracts and colonialism and consumerism and industrialism, and I'm out of breath. I could keep going. Against that backdrop, theistic determinism is just another one. It's just another determinism in a long list of things that control our lives. And talking about God as this all-powerful, all-controlling entity is actually bad news. It just reduces us to plastic chess people on a board, or puppets in a play we didn't write, or cogs in a machine that only has levers God can push, or for my gamer friends, NPCs. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, in the U.S., we are surrounded by Christians, and sometimes we are those same Christians, so no need to get self-righteous, okay? Uh, we are sometimes the Christians who very much like the idea of an American God and a wonderful middle-class Jesus, who is first and foremost concerned with our national security and our way of life. The Lord is my shepherd has often become the Lord is my president. I voted for him. It's not in God we trust. It's in our military industrial complex and capitalism we trust. I feel like I should stump when I say that. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Thank you, Pentecostals in the room. <laughs> this language of lordship and authority really only seems to preserve the status quo, doesn't it? When we think about it in that term, to protect and baptize whatever regime, no matter how awful, is in power. And I know I'm being political, but I'm not calling out anyone specifically. There is no good. Like, if you are going to reach the top, you have made some compromises. There is none righteous. <laughs> no, not one. Pretty sure that's in the Bible. Pretty sure. That's an SNL reference, because I can't help myself. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Okay. I lost my place. Now I'm stalling. <laughs> okay, what good news? What is good news in this circumstance? It would be a leader who actually liberates us from determinisms and deconstructs oppressive authority and the self-absorbed power-hungry leaders and delivers us from the corrupt powerful and corrupt power itself. Which is exactly what is meant by the phrase Jesus is Lord. We just don't think of it that way. Because in Jesus' day, Caesar was Lord. Caesar is Lord was a political pledge of allegiance required by everyone. To call Jesus Lord meant that there was a power in Jesus more important than the power of the Caesar, the king of the greatest empire the world had ever known at that point. To say Jesus is Lord is a very political statement. And affirmed this powerless Jewish rabbi over Caesar with his armies and money and whatever else he did. Palaces. Here's what I found. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can hear that on the podcast. My watch decided to interrupt. <laughs> Would you like to know what time it is? No. <laughs> but here's what I found on the internet. Jesus comes as a, as a liberating revolutionary leader that frees us from the dehumanization and oppression that the powers that be in our world, including religious powers, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of oppressive control, even though we have made it entirely that. It's not me. <laughs> now I'm nervous. Like, what is it doing? <laughs> the Skynet is listening to me. <laughs> you know, some people are like, do you know that your watch and your phone and your Alexa devices are listening to you? I'm like, yeah, and if they are, they're going to be profoundly bored. <laughs> Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of dream, this dreamed-up freedom, not of dominance, but of love, not of domination, but of bottom-up service, not clenched iron fists, but of open, wounded hands. Now, a second meaning of Lord is just as bad as the first because it suggests a master in relation to a servant or slave. 
And here we run into more problematic language, language of oppression and domination and coercion. But then Jesus takes this image of a master-slave relations, which the people who were reading this in ancient times would have understood. There were slaves everywhere. You either were or you weren't. And Jesus takes this construct and turns it inside out, completely empties it of the old meaning and refills it with new meaning. Because Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. And then sets a shocking example of what mastership, lordship, leadership looks like and strips down to his underwear and washes people's feet. Which, I mean, if you grew up like I did, you've been through a foot washing service or two in your life. Gross. Nobody's touching my feet. (laughs) Also, we're not doing that here. And not that they can't be very meaningful, but I don't think we understand really what it means. Think of the worst thing that you would never want to do for another person. That is what washing feet was then. Only slaves did that. Never someone who was not. Never the master. Ever. And Jesus says, this is what I'm doing, and if you want to follow me, you had better follow this example. He wasn't like, you know, if you feel like it, if it fits into your schedule, if you can, you know, Venmo a couple bucks to people to show that you support their cause. No, Jesus was like, if you want to be in this with me, then you have to take the worst job and do it. The first will be last and the last will be first. And what does that mean? That means that the people who were the most oppressed and the most suppressed and the people who were the most marginalized and had no rights in that society, they were elevated to positions of great honor. And the people who had privilege and standing of any kind and safety, they got to do the jobs that they never wanted to. That's what the last is first and the first is last means. And in this way, I think acknowledging Jesus as master means we have to actually voluntarily accept that Jesus is the one giving commands. He's not like our wish-granting genie or like a vending machine where you can be like, come on, Jesus. Let me get three cherries in a row and then I can get what I want. Like, no. The prime directive is for us to learn from Jesus how to serve God and our neighbors and our enemies and the world. Confessing Jesus as Lord means joining Jesus in the revolution of love. And that is much different than the understanding of faith that we currently have in America, which is Christians are nice people who know the truth and do good, which sometimes is true, and sometimes it's Christians are mean people who use the truth to be mean and do bad. And then there's a third meaning of Lord, which is means like a master teacher or a rabbi, someone who tells us what to do and how to live. Here's a conspiracy theory about how Christianity has successfully dethroned Jesus as Lord to such a degree that the Jesus who is preached and pasted on bumper stickers and serenaded in gooey love songs on Christian radio and TV. Um, have you ever heard, heard that song um, that's got the line, like, heaven greets earth like a sloppy wet kiss? Yes. Okay, first of all, gross. <laughs> You know, it's got a good beat. I don't hate that song. But like, what? why? That was a tangent. Gooey love songs on religious radio. The person we're praying to seems sometimes to be an imposter. This is my argument. Conspiracy theory point one. 
We have retained Jesus as Savior, but have promoted the Apostle Paul to our Lord and teacher. Even as Savior, though, we have limited Jesus to saving us only from hell, which would explain why we're really only interested in his birth, death, and resurrection. And we have comparatively little interest in Jesus saving us from things that might actually affect our life, like greed, gossip, prejudice, violence, isolation, carelessness about the poor or the planet, hurry, hatred, envy, pride, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anything we you know, like to enjoy every once in a while. We do this in various ways by first assuming that Jesus and his gospel, the purpose of this is just to get us into heaven after death, which therefore means that the only really important thing about Jesus is his death because that somehow saves us from our guilt problem and gets us into heaven. Or we've decided that Jesus, the message was really spiritual. It pertained to eternity, which means I don't really have to change much about my life right now. I certainly don't have to give up some of my privilege and power and serve other people. And or by deciding that the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, have been completely interpreted by Paul. So the teachings of Jesus themselves deserve not much attention on their own. And we've developed theological systems that taught us how to avoid many of Jesus' teachings. We would rather argue for hours about what justification by faith means in Romans than we would about actually getting off our butts and doing something that Jesus said. We've made up for our, demo- our demotion of Jesus from Lord by just saying his name all the time. We just say it and sing it, and we say, Lord, Lord, as much as possible and with deep feeling and high volume. And this allows us to feel like good Christians, whether or not we actually care about or do anything that Jesus said. Now, I feel like so few of the things we've grown up with as traditional Christianity, y'all can come back up. I don't want to get carried away. I might, feeling very like today. I have already gotten carried away, but I will rein it back in. (laughs) So few of the things that we grew up with in traditional Christianity are necessary for faith today. We're doing just fine, we think, with Jesus as Savior and not as Lord in any meaningful sense. If the real Lord Jesus were to knock on our door, as the revolutionary world-changing force that he is, I'm pretty sure we'd look through the peephole and then call the cops. Because our buddy Jesus, the savior is already sitting on the couch inside with us and like meeting our needs very well, thank you very much, and not asking very much of us at all. Our domesticated, romanticized, spiritualized, tiny baby Jesus has become for us the orthodox Jesus. So an alternative Jesus, perhaps a true Jesus, looks very unorthodox and unfamiliar and perhaps dangerous and perhaps deserving of, what, arrest? Death? Crucifixion? And what we have created is a religion that Jesus would probably consider just about as useful as non-Christians consider Christianity to be, which is to say not very useful at all. Now I've gone and depressed myself. 
But before we get all self-righteous and say things like, we don't do that here. Of course we do. We all do this to some extent because it's a human trait to make a God in our own image that doesn't ask us to do anything. But the difference is, the difference is we're really trying not to. The difference is we have been given a divine awareness of what true faith community looks like and we are trying to make it so. And when we offer a listening ear to someone who is struggling, we make it so. When we stand up against faith spaces that are not inclusive and then we work together to build an affirming faith space where all people can show up as who they are and be celebrated, then we make it so. And when we surrender finally the shoulds and the coulds and the desires for control that we have, we lean fully just into the transformation and the healing that God wants to do in our hearts. We make it so. The powerful play goes on. And we may contribute a verse.